uh, with our HRV, you know, when we are experiencing lower HRV, what's that, what that generally is a function of is that we're asking uh, our autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic branch to send a lot of signals to the heart that are telling the heart to increase, mm-hmm. right? And, and that when we're telling our heart to increase, we're also releasing adrenaline, epinephrine, you know, uh, uh, cortisol. So all of these kind of, you know, heart pumping type mm-hmm. of uh, hormones, which are really good when we need to be activated. But there's a lot of times throughout the day we do not need to be activated, right? Like when we're and checking our moments, email or yeah. we're checking our email. Yeah. Exactly. And, and it is in those moments where we want to try to actively bring our heart rate down. So we're not in a situation where we're chronically activated throughout the day. Cause that mm-hmm. is what, that is what, you know, will rear its head when we're trying to fall asleep at night. And we're, we're so activated that we can't wind down mm-hmm. or we're so tired that we fall asleep but we end up having a fragmented sleep experience because we haven't, we've allowed this stress to accumulate over the course of the day. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Before we dive into the episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I am so excited to be here today with Kristen Holmes, who is the Vice President of Performance Science at WHOOP. Um, There, she drives thought leadership by engaging with industry-leading researchers and partners to better understand individual, team, and organizational biometric and performance data across high-stakes verticals. We're going to dig into that today. Before she joined WHOOP in 2016, she was the head field hockey coach at Princeton University, where she was one of the most successful coaches in Ivy League history, having won 12 league titles in 13 seasons and a national championship. Kristen was also an athlete in her own right. She was a three-time All-American, two-time Big Ten Athlete of the Year at the University of Iowa, competing in both field hockey and basketball, and recently inducted into the Hall of Fame Class of 2021 and was a seven-year member of the U.S. National Field Hockey Team. Kristen blends her academic and applied background in athletics, coaching, performance, technology, psychology, and exercise physiology to drive research, partnership, and product development initiatives to strengthen WHOOP as a leader in human performance. She holds a master's in psychology and sports performance from the University of the Rockies and is a PhD candidate in psychology at the University of Queensland. So welcome. That is quite the bio and so many things that I'm interested in chatting with you about today. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me, Kristen. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here, Julie. Thanks for having me. Well, I'd love to start with some of your background. Obviously, you are steeped in athletics and sports ever since you were a child. But I'd love to know, was there a moment growing up when you realized, wow, I think I have potential to be a really good athlete, like maybe a college athlete or beyond that? Yeah, well, I suppose you just start getting feedback from folks, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and you you start to have, I guess, some level of success. And, uh, you know, that I think is motivating and propels you to kind of work harder and to seek more opportunities to develop your skills. But I, I always loved, loved team sports and mm-hmm. just loved the whole thing, you know, the competition, <laughs> being a part of being a, you know, part of a team and having this kind of bigger purpose. And so I really gravitated 
just to that at a, at a very young age, uh, played a lot of basketball and uh, then got into field hockey. I kind of uh, exited soccer and uh, started to spend a lot of time in field hockey. But I, I suppose, you know, in, in eighth grade, ninth grade, I really, um, I just loved it so much. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, and it, it's, it's kind of one of those things where it, it's like, it didn't seem like work to me. You know, I loved practicing would spend, you know, all my time playing basketball and field hockey and, and just loved every minute of it. So I figured, wow, if there's an opportunity to kind of <laughs> ride this for as long as possible, yeah, I'm going to do it. So, absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing. And so interesting, speaking of the psychology of it, that positive feedback mm-hmm. loop of when you get positive reinforcement, then you, I think you sort of expand your horizons of what's possible and believe in yourself more. And then next thing yeah. you know, you know, you're achieving these great things. I know that I can relate to that too with CrossFit within the first year of starting. I remember being at a local competition just at our gym and hearing, overhearing someone say, Oh, I think she has potential to go to the games one day. And then (laughs) being like, Oh, maybe I do. (laughs) And then, you know, you believe it and it starts to change, you know, your thoughts and your habits. And next thing you know, there you are. So true. Yeah. I I always feel, you know, I feel so lucky that I had just extraordinary coaches, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, they had varying skill levels, but they're just such great people. And, you know, and, and, and that's, yeah, I think having so many wonderful coaches really did inspire me to, to want to go into coaching and have mm-hmm. the same sort of impact on, on students, student athletes. So I, yeah, just been very, very humbled and grateful uh, for the, the type of coaches I, I've been able to interact with um, throughout my career. That's amazing. That's amazing. And so then you, you know, because of these great coaches and role models, you decided to go into coaching yourself, had a very successful coaching career. At what point was it that you started to understand the power of using data or wearable data in order to improve performance? Yeah, I, I was. I think early on in in my coaching career, you know, it's technically and tactically you know, quite a proficient coach, like, and, and really prided myself on, mm-hmm. you know, being able to put together game plans and, and, and coach the technical and tactical aspects of the game, but realized very quickly that it, it's, it's just way more than the X's and O's, you know, that only gets you so far. And, and that's actually when I, I really started in a great, uh, a comprehensive performance education platform, uh, that really, uh, helped my student athletes understand the relationship between the psychology and the physiology mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, on arousal levels, so mental, physical, emotional arousal Mm -hmm. levels, because that's at the heart of performance. It's being able to modulate that, you know, Mm -hmm. effectively to get get the outcome that you want. You know, like you don't want to be too high, you don't want to be too low. You kind of want to get in that challenging zone. And a lot of that is mediated by how we manage our physiology and how we manage our psychology. So Mm -hmm. I started putting together kind of this very robust kind of framework um, that was simple that helped my athletes understand all right, if I do X, Y, and Z on the physiological side, if I do X, Y, Z on the psycho- psychological side, I can actually really start to uh, modulate my arousal levels and, and really, you know, choose my level of, of performance. So my mm-hmm. intentional capacity, my effective effort, my energy production, motivation. So really started digging in deep, you know, kind of in, in that realm and, pr- and creating that framework. Yeah. And then, and can then you give I, some you know, examples of what those things would be on the physiological and psychological yeah, side. Yeah. So in terms of a taxonomy, and, and this is what's wonderful, you know, in, in the work, that I do now is, is really researching, you know, what, what are the, the, the kind of, um, you know, influences on both the physiology, the physiological and psychological side that, that actually do, you know, move us, uh, in, uh, around on the performance spectrum mm-hmm. and on the physiological side, you won't be surprised that sleep is, <laughs> High is, on the list. <laughs> is, is, is at the very top, really. Um, you know, we can go, 
you know, weeks without eating and sleeping, uh, without eating and drinking, um, you know, fluids, but we go a week without sleep and we would be dead. <laughs> so, um, so sleep is, is extraordinarily important. Um, so that was, has always been a big piece of our performance framework is, okay, how do we figure out, I was at Princeton University, which is a challenging on every levels, uh, mm-hmm. so competitive, um, very demanding. And, um, you know, and it was seen as a weakness to sleep, frankly, my, my, my student athletes had to hide their sleep. Right. Cause they'd be seen. Imagine as, that. <laughs> why, why aren't you studying harder? Why aren't you working it harder? Just, yeah. It was, it was, and I, and I don't mean to disparage, you know, obviously yeah. it's, it's, but a I think that's true in our culture in general. It, yeah, it is. Yeah. So, you know, so I was always stomping around campus trying to, you know, not letting my kid, <laughs> not letting my student athletes go to, uh, you know, kind of freshman orientation things at 1am. And so, yeah, I was, I was, people didn't like me on campus, but, um, cause I was trying to protect my student athletes from all of their like vicious policies. But, um, uh, yeah, so sleep is is at the very tippy top um, on the physiological side. We could dig into that. There's mm-hmm. lots of aspects of sleep, consistency, sufficiency, um, you know, quality, and and they all kind of one drives the other. But um, so there's a taxonomy kind of within mm-hmm. sleep as well. And then recovery parameters are are absolutely essential. So really understanding the relationship between stress and rest. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens in these high performing, high stress environments, you know, which is the subject of a lot of my research, is that the demand exceeds the capacity. It's very, very simple, right? That's it. And that is really what leads to burnout and what leads to depression and what leads to, um, you know, just general, uh, you know, kind of feelings of uh, dissatisfaction mm-hmm. <laughs> about your life. Um, mm-hmm. So really kind of uh, modulating the stress and rest and being able to manage that effectively, I think is, is the skill. Um, and then, you know, appropriate training. So really thinking about uh, volume and intensity and making sure that it's appropriate based on capacity. That's what WHOOP is great. You know, we've kind of got these two recovery and strain working mm-hmm. together to kind of give you insight into how hard, how much, you know, load you can take on um, so really thinking about the, the training, obviously, and that's where we started to incorporate a lot of technology uh, during our training, kind of back to your original question uh, about how did I get into technology is, is really to try to understand the stress rest balance, um, mm-hmm. because it, it just, it, it, you know, there's so, there, you know, when I started incorporating technology, it was about, gosh, 15 years ago. So I was a very, very early adopter when it comes to external load, internal load. We have tons of subjective uh, markers as well. Um, But what was interesting is, you know, even though we were, you know, kind of monitoring a ton of these uh, uh, internal parameters during training, it didn't actually predict next day capacity. Hmm. So it wasn't actually what we're doing in training didn't actually predict how they show up tomorrow. So it's these other influences. It's the sleep. It's the kind of stress rest management Mm -hmm. outside of training. And also these psychological factors that I can get into as well that are bubble up to the surface. You know, if you think about sleep recovery and training, you know, balance, Mm -hmm. um, you know, on the psychological side, it's, you know, do I feel like what I'm doing aligns with what I care about? You know, is it really, uh, you know, is this enabling me? Is what I, is this thing that I'm doing? Is it is it an outlet for what I say I care about and what I value? And that's really kind of the purpose piece. Mm-hmm. Belongingness, connectedness is also in there, but it's kind of an uh, in, you know an interpersonal um, you know influence. So I'm kind of thinking solely about the individual, so intrapersonal. But so purpose, um, efficacy. Do I have the skills and resources to do what's asked of me um, on a daily basis? And then um, finally, control. And those are really um, our three most core, our three core psychological needs that we have as human beings, and, and really it's about having a framework uh, across these six kind of uh, influences to to ensure that you know you're building strategies and routines to kind of account for them in a in a in an intentional way. If in fact you're you're really interested in 
being able to, you know, choose your, your performance levels. Mm-hmm. Wow. So much that I <laughs> want to <laughs> dig into there. I think first just pulling out, you know, this balance between stress and uh, rest, I think is so mm-hmm. interesting, especially looking at, you know, college students as when we're young and resilient, we don't do a great job of self-assessing probably that balance because we can probably push ourselves a little bit harder and feel like we're recovering. But especially as we get older um, Mm -hmm. or those stresses come from different places, like we may think about, oh, it's just the training load, but it is, like you said, it's all these other things that happen outside that training time. And I think that's true for all of us, no matter what our training looks like now, if it's going to the gym for an hour or, Mm -hmm. you know, triathlon training or whatever it might look like, you know, that's important, but probably more important are all these other factors outside that we're not as good at self-assessing. And that's where the data becomes really important. Yeah. You hit on it. I think we're not good at perceiving our own, you know, physical and cognitive declines, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's where data really helped in my environment at Princeton and and where it's been just, uh, you know, to see it in play across all the teams and organizations that I work with now and and to see folks kind of have that aha moment where, wow, I'm actually adapting to a lower level of performance here Mm -hmm. and didn't even know it, you know, Mm -hmm. and and that's where data can be, you know, wildly beneficial uh, to just kind of see the performance cost, I think, of of not taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And then I think most importantly, then where to apply your effort. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's where a lot of the confusion you know, comes into play is, well, what do I actually need to do to improve my trajectory um, to, you know, these biomarkers that we say are important to track? Like, how do I actually move them around in a way that is going to help me be a better version of myself, which I, I think is at the core, what we're all striving to kind of create for ourselves is we want to show up with as much, you know, mental, physical and emotional mm-hmm. capacity as possible. So we can, you know, be a a, a positive influence on the people around us and, and be available, you know, for life mm-hmm. in, in ways that, that, you know, feel, feel good to us. So, um, yeah, I think that's kind of the opportunity, I suppose. <laughs> Absolutely. And I see it, you know, I've been, it's been so apparent to me seeing it in my practice with patients of some of the most basic things that we all know are good for us. Like you said, getting yeah. enough sleep, you know, yeah. hydrating, um, rest, all these things that we know, you know, that our grandmother told us were important for us, but yeah, when it's amazing, the impact on human behavior change, when we actually see our own personal data and what that yeah. can do. And then to be able to see the response, you know, in a relatively short amount of time, when I change this behavior, this biomarker gets better, biometric gets better. Yep. Um, so I think it's extremely powerful. Do we, do we necessarily need the data in order to do all these things? Like if someone really did all the behaviors which have shown and, mm-hmm. and proven to, to be important for our health, they could, but I think as humans, <laughs> it's much more likely that we're going to do it when we see that data. Yeah. And life, life changes too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the, the data can be helpful. You know, you might, you might, have the a birth of a child or, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you might have a parent who gets sick. Like you might have relationship struggles. Like all of these things are going to impact, uh, they're, they're going to, they're going to impact you, mm-hmm. you know, f- physiologically and psychologically and, and having something to anchor to, I think could be really helpful. Uh, and, and doing the little things that kind of can keep you on track in these moments where you're really stressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think also too, ensuring that you are building a, a, a resilient base 
in the event that something in life does go wrong, Mm -hmm. you're invariably going to be uh, able to cope with that stressor more effectively uh, if you have this 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 base of of resilience. And and that's actually what we saw in a a huge study that we did. Uh, It's in peer review right now, but Dr. Chuck Seisler, who's a preeminent uh, sleep scientist out of Harvard, was one Mm -hmm. of the principal investigators on the study. And what we did is we just retrospectively went back into our data set and looked at three months prior to uh, quarantine mm-hmm. and the three months post-quarantine. And sure enough, the individuals who were more physiologically and psychologically robust going into the pandemic uh, were and into quarantine were indeed, um, you know, fared better than folks who were less physiologically and psychologically robust, which is not surprising. And and one of the behaviors that we saw bubble to the surface as being most predictive of physiological and psychological resilience uh, post-quarantine was sleep-wake behavior. Mm. So individuals with the more stable sleep-wake time Mm -hmm. um, were actually the ones who bubbled up as being um, the most resilient uh, in the face of kind of all the quarantine parameters and everything, all the stress and uncertainty that that that, uh, moment in time kind of brought to individuals. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this like interesting natural experiment we were able to do. But, and I will say just to stay on the sleep-wake timing is if you think about that physiological bucket, you know, that first one being Mm -hmm. sleep, the most important behavior that drives our how the quality of sleep mm-hmm. that we're spending, so the, the how efficient our sleep is, is actually the sleep-wake time. Um, and I, I've seen that in research that, I've, uh, that I'm doing with frontline healthcare clinicians and with U.S. Army Alaska. It, it continually bubbles up as being the most predictive behavior of all the behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it correlates to all sorts of things, but uh, most importantly, physiological uh, and psychological resilience. That's incredible. And what an incredible opportunity you know, we had, like you said, to be, to be able to collect that data yeah. from this sort of big stressor, one of the, one of the silver linings, another silver lining, I suppose, of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, and fascinating about sleep wake time. I know I first heard that from you when we did our panel at the CrossFit games last year, and I was really, you know, blown away by that. And it's something I've been focusing on more and sharing more with my patients because, yeah. um, I don't think a lot of people know about that. Gosh, they don't. And I, and I guess I can, truly can't underscore <laughs> it enough, how like important. how yeah. important it is. Yeah. It's, I mean, when you think about, you know, uh, your hormones, so you think about melatonin and cortisol and, you know, just, uh, your ability to kind of build sleep pressure in the day mm-hmm. in a way that is optimal, um, you know, that, that cortisol release in the day. And, and I think coupling sleep wake time with, um, exposure to light and then mm-hmm. the absence of light when you're trying to, to go to bed is also really, really critical. <laughs> and, and usually folks who have stable sleep wake time, generally speaking, are viewing, um, light, uh, mm-hmm. in, in the morning and, and are not viewing light in the evening at appropriate times. But those two kind of behaviors, I think, go really go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And we kind of call this like circadian health. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be, you know, uh, two words that you hear more and more because a lot of this research, I think, is coming out on how important this sleep-wake time is to mm-hmm. our, our overall ability to cope and adapt to life demands. Um, and then with that is, is really making sure we view bright light in the morning and then really taking away light when it's time to be sleepy. So after the sun's that's dimming light, um, really trying to be mindful of how we're interacting with um, you know, our, our devices, uh, putting on those blue light filters, putting on the blue light glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going into our sleep um, and we're enabling that melatonin to get released because what that blue light does is it basically inhibits melatonin production. Um, so we have to be really careful mm-hmm. about how, we, how we're viewing light as well. 
Incredibly important. And like you said, impacting all of our hormones, all of our physiological function. And I know even down to our microbiome, there's so many um, different exactly. body systems that are entrained by that circadian rhythm. Yep. Yep. Beautifully oh, said. Incredible. Yep. Well, I want to dig more into some of these behaviors, but before we mm-hmm. do, I was hoping you could give just a brief overview on heart rate variability or HRV mm-hmm. and why it's important, because I think, you know, that uh, is a marker that now more people are aware of and, and testing. Mm-hmm. And I think something that gives such a objective view into our overall sort of stress load and resilience. Yeah, absolutely. So HRV, heart rate variability um, is, you know, simply the the time interval between heartbeats. And uh, your HRV, it's a, it's a function of the heart, but it originates in our autonomic nervous system. And our autonomic nervous system has two branches, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. And they are both competing to send signals to the heart. The more recovered you are, the more capable your heart is going to be to respond to those signals from the autonomic nervous system. The less recovered you are, the less responsive your heart is going to be to those signals. So how this plays out in the real world is if you know I'm trying to react to a, a bus that I just saw that's coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the less recovered I am, the less variable my heart is, the less responsive I'm going to be to that demand. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you think about this in the context, you know, if you are kind of measuring these biomarkers and you have you're measuring heart rate variability and you wake up and there's a huge deviation from your baseline, and let's say you get a recovery score, a readiness score, and it's, you know, you're in the red, that just it doesn't mean you're gonna get hit by a bus, but it does mean that your your heart is simply less responsive to these signals that are coming from your your autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. And the parasympathetic is really kind of that at rest and digest, that deactivating branch of the nervous system. Okay, it's going to tell your heart to reduce or you know decrease. The sympathetic is the activating branch or the fight or flight. And that's going to tell your heart rate to, to you know, jack up. And again, when the less recovered we are, the less responsive our heart is going to be to the inputs, the signals that our autonomic nervous system is trying to send to the heart. So the higher your heart rate variability relative to your own baseline, the more capable you are to adapt to the demands of your environment. Okay, the more resilient you're going to be uh, in the in the face of stress. That is one of the best descriptions I've heard of HRV. I love that. And it makes me think about, um, just as an analogy, it makes me think about reaction time. Like as an athlete, if you're in a sport where you need to react quickly, yes, you know, you're going to be more successful versus if you didn't get enough sleep the night before and you're a little sluggish and slow, or you're, you're me and never played ball sports growing up and your reaction time is just always slow. (laughs) Without a doubt. I mean, I, you know, you think about it from the perspective of contact sports, you know, Mm -hmm. just imagine like when you, you know, you see generally there isn't a linear relationship between sleep and HRV, but so they're not collinear, but they're, they're obviously very strongly correlated. So if we're going into a situation where we're, we're under recovered and could be a variety of scenario situations that impact our HRV rate. It's not just sleep. It's a whole host of things, which makes it a really powerful marker because it's, uh, but more confusing, I guess, in terms mm-hmm. of unpacking, where is the origin of my low HRV? And I can dig into that if you want, but, um, but you know, you think about it for, for sports, for example, yeah, you're, you know, just seeing, you know, your peripheral vision actually decreases, um, wow. you know, with, with, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, when, when you're, you know, 
less recovered. Mm-hmm. So I think we have good research, um, you know, showing sleep de- deprivation actually narrows your field of vision. Um, and you can think about sleep, you know, when you are sleep deprived and you've got low HRV, now you're really going into the game with a pretty huge ha- handicap. And then you just increase your chances of, of getting injured, frankly, because mm-hmm. um, you just can't see as well. So yeah, I mean, there's lots of reasons to kind of think about it um, in an intentional way. But mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely for contact sports, it's it's really important to to understand how this marker could be used to, to keep folks safe. And I noticed you said that it's important to look at relative to your baseline. Can you mm-hmm. explain that? Because I think sometimes when people first see their HRV, they're maybe comparing it to, you know, their friend or family member. And how do we how do we think about HRV, HRV absolute numbers? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's based on age um, and it declines over time, um, but it is modifiable. So you mm-hmm. can um, definitely, uh, you know, slow that that decline. No question. Um, I can dig into that. But uh, yeah, so age, genetics, you know, your heart size. I mean, there's lots of things that are going to influence your HRV. Mm-hmm. I think, too, you know, behaviors leading up to that moment are also mm-hmm. going to influence your baseline. So you, if you're a heavy drinker, alcohol, um, if, you know, you're typically not, you know, sleeping a lot, like whatever your baseline would be in the moment that you start measuring it mm-hmm. could have potentially been higher if you weren't like crushing, you know, yourself for the, you know, 30 years <laughs> prior to that yeah. moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that is important to, to mention be, because those are the exact behaviors that you can modify in order to actually improve your situation. So I just think it's important to kind of make that connection for folks, but, but it is, it's really you against you uh, Mm -hmm. is, it's important to to note. I will say that a lot of the more, you know, kind of elite athletes who come on the platform uh, tend to tend to have higher HRV, Mm -hmm. um, but it is uh, it is based on your genetics and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and your age. Got it. So you mentioned sleep, wake time and circadian rhythm Mm -hmm. training to be, to have a big impact on a recovery from all of the data that you've seen, what are some of the other behaviors that have shown to have the biggest impact on our HRV? Yep. So definitely that circadian health bucket. So, mm-hmm. um, yep. So sleep wake time, um, uh, light behavior, uh, is going to be massive, uh, mm-hmm. just because of its, its role in impacting every cell in our, in our body and tells every, everything in our body what to do. Um, I would say, Meal timing is another one that's really important. Uh, a lot of the work that's come out of Sachin Panda's lab, you know, suggests that we need to kind of restrict our feeding windows. Mm-hmm. And this makes sense when we think about it in the context of our circadian rhythm. You know, if we're asking our system to, you know, digestion is a, is a, is super effortful, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it really takes a lot of effort. So and it's a parasympathetic activity. So imagine when we're trying to digest food. A lot of the other restorative activities that, you know, should be going on with our organs and, you know, all of our cellular cleanup and mitochondria function, all of that are kind of um, not able to fire in all cylinders because we're trying to deal with the food that's in our gut. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it makes sense that, you know, if you eat a lot over the course of, you know, 14, 15, 16 hours or whatever, you'll probably wake up with a lower HRV. It's because you've been asking your body to do two things at once, and it just doesn't do that very well. So you want to try to restrict your feeding window. So you give your body ample time to be in this parasympathetic state. uh, And that generally is happening during sleep. So really minimizing food prior to sleep, you know, if you can do it, you know, try to give yourself a three-hour window um, to where you stop eating before Mm -hmm. you intend to sleep. 
Um, so then you're not, you know, diverting resources during sleep toward digestion. You can really focus on all the restorative things that need to be happening during sleep. So think about your fast kind of starting um, that two to three hours prior to when you sleep, and then you get your eight or so hours of sleep. So you've got this like nice big window where you're actually not eating any food. Mm -hmm. If you can extend that a little bit longer, um, you know, to kind of 14 hours, uh, and then your feeding window is, is 10 or even 16 hours and your feeding window is mm -hmm. eight. Um, that that's probably ideal from what we've seen in the literature so far. Um, yeah. And I think so, that's a great yeah. point because so many people, I think when they think intermittent fasting, they're often doing that fasting window in the morning, they're skipping breakfast. Mm -hmm. Whereas maybe, you know, culturally it's a little hard to skip dinner, but, um, but if you can move that dinner time earlier and have more of a window where you're not eating before bedtime, maybe that's a little bit more sort of in alignment with our evolutionary development. Yeah. And if you can, you know, um, just to maybe delay breakfast slightly, um, mm -hmm. you know, so you've, uh, so you're kind of getting that extra couple mm -hmm. hours in the morning that could be great, but yeah, just moving that feeding window around a little bit. And, mm -hmm. and like I said, you know, two, two hours before you intend to sleep is generally enough. If you can couple it with, uh, a walk after dinner, that will also help things. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, you know, it minimizes your, uh, glucose variability. Mm -hmm. If you can do a walk after, uh, your meal at night. Um, and I think it reduces it by up to maybe 14, I'll have to fact check this by up to 14%. So it's, it's quite meaningful. Um, so mm -hmm. just a nice 10 minute stroll after dinner, mm -hmm. um, will help you, uh, metabolize that glucose more effectively. And, um, and that could maybe give you a little extra time, like a little more mm -hmm. time, I guess. Um, whereas instead of maybe, you know, the three hours you can get away with the two or maybe even an hour and a half if you're getting in that post, sure. uh, post meal walk. And that's the beauty of having this data, right? You can play around with it and see what yeah. works for you. Yeah. You can run just these like little N of one experiments. Mm -hmm. Cause you know, we're all so different, you know, how mm -hmm. I might respond or, or I metabolize food differently, you know, and in our, the content of what we're eating and the quality mm -hmm. of what we're eating is different. So yeah. So starting, you know, do these many experiments to kind of see, you know, how, uh, what is best for you, I think is, is the path. Um, so yeah, so, so sleep, wake timing, um, light exposure, meal timing, exercise timing is another lever that we can pull that helps, um, our body anticipate what's going to happen. So mm -hmm. all of these circadian kind of health that influence our recovery and our HRV and our ability to adapt, increase our resilience. Um, exercise timing is another cue that our body really um, likes to entrain to. So if we can keep our, um, our, uh, exercise windows in a time where it's not going to uh, phase, uh, you know, ch uh, shift our circadian, um, uh, you know, advance or delay our, our circadian clock. It's kind of ideal. So anytime between, you know, 10 and, and 4 p.m. is uh, 10, 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., uh, you're not going to phase or, or delay your circadian rhythm. Uh, and then if you want to, you know, phase, phase advance or phase delay, you mm -hmm. use these levers to do just that. You know, you view light a little bit later if you want to go to sleep a little bit later. You view light a little bit earlier if you want to uh, go to bed a little earlier. So there's, you know, you can kind of play with these if you're um, looking to, to, to kind of shift your clock a little bit. Those are the levers to do that. Um, and then, yeah, so the circadian health mm -hmm. and then in the recovery bucket, there's a whole bunch of stuff, uh, that I can get into. Um, you know, one of which is, you know, uh, uh related to your, to, to breath, to mm -hmm. breathing. Um, uh, you know, I think, uh, with our HRV, you know, when we are experiencing lower HRV, 
what's that, what that generally is a function of is that we're asking uh, our autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic branch to send a lot of signals to the heart that are telling the heart to increase, mm-hmm. right? And, and that when we're telling our heart to increase, we're also releasing adrenaline, epinephrine, you know, uh, uh, cortisol. So all of these kind of, you know, heart pumping type mm-hmm. of uh, hormones, which are really good when we need to be activated. But there's a lot of times throughout the day we do not need to be activated, right? Like when we're checking our email or it is in those moments where we want to try to actively bring our heart rate down. So we're not in a situation where we're chronically activated throughout the day. Cause that mm-hmm. is what, that is what, you know, will rear its head when we're trying to fall asleep at night. And we're, we're so activated that we can't wind down mm-hmm. or we're so tired that we fall asleep but we end up having a fragmented sleep experience because we haven't, we've allowed this stress to accumulate over the course of the day. So breathing, um, incorporating breath work throughout the day, these mini moments of rest can be super, super powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't have to be a long time. You know, in fact, uh, in a research study that we just completed with uh, Dr. Huberman's lab at Stanford, we found that we did a whole... uh, kind of test on um, all these different uh, breathing protocols. So right. mindful breathing, box breathing, mm-hmm. um, we tested the physiological sigh, um, and we tested tumor breathing. And we basically wanted to see what happens physiologically, what happens psychologically to folks when they do these different breath works uh, for five minutes a day. And what we saw in this research is that the folks who did the physiological sigh, which is a double inhale and an exhale, mm-hmm. experienced the greatest change in HRV, so the greatest deactivation, so parasympathetic mm-hmm. saturation during this five minutes of physiological sigh breathing. So, and you just do that for five minutes. Okay. So just as many cycles as you can in five minutes, but mm-hmm. just, you know, not just a nice gentle effort. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw decreases in resting heart rate, um, increases in resting heart rate and in HRV, sorry, and decreases in resting heart rate, um, increases in feelings of well-being, uh, better sleep. Um, and I think what was really cool is the ability to regulate one state away from the breathwork session. Mm. So, um, yeah, and the decreases in anxiety. So yeah, it was really, um, it was an awesome study, really well designed. Um, it's in peer review right now. So hopefully, so these are preliminary data, but, um, but when we think about, you know, and this is a lot of what my work at WHOOP involves is revolves around is really mm-hmm. trying to figure out, you know, what are these things that move the needle the most? Okay. Sleep, wake time. And we see is just by far mm-hmm. physiological sigh is another uh, behavior that we know mediates heart rate variability. Um, the other uh, technique that I would say is um, the most efficacious in mediating heart rate variability. And there's decades of research around this is, is a technique called resonance frequency breathing. Mm-hmm. And this is basically a biofeedback technique. So you can go online and you can find what your optimal frequency is. Oh, okay. And it's basically just mapping your heart rate, your respiratory rate and your kind of cardiac system. You're trying mm-hmm. to getting them as kind of in sync or, you know, in, in resonance or coherence as, as possible. Okay. And adults um, typically breathe at any rate, you know, between 12 and 24 uh, breaths per minute. Um, this basically, this technique cuts that in half. So anywhere from three to seven breaths per minute okay. um, in this kind of cadence. So mine is... Um, uh, mine is kind of a, a, a six to four mm-hmm. ratio, but everyone's is a little bit different. And that's kind of the magic of this. And it takes about 
Yeah. And if you just go online and Google resonance frequency breathing, um, you can kind of do these different tests to figure out like what, what your optimal frequency is. Okay. But if you do this 10 to 20 minutes a day, it's been shown to, 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 to increase heart rate variability. Uh, you know, it deal, it helps, uh, decrease tons of symptoms related to post-traumatic, uh, stress disorder, uh, symptoms of depression. Um, it, it has been shown to reduce chronic pain. It's a really pout when you can breathe, uh, in this kind of way that increases, uh, cardiac and respiratory coherence. It has incredible downstream effects. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's been clinically validated. Um, and then these, and these, um, uh, these are quite, significant in terms of the effects uh, of the effect of this breathing on these, these, um, uh, these, these various uh, symptoms. So wow, that's, uh, that's amazing. Another, I had not heard of that breathing yeah. technique before. I'm yeah. excited so, to try yeah. it out. So those are two that are, that are, are pretty amazing. Um, and then, you know, I think anything that is inducing stress and kind of creating hormesis, um, mm-hmm. you know, which is the positive adaptation to, to stress um, is good. So, you know, cold, uh, you know, getting in a cold tub can be can be pretty amazing. Um, sauna has been shown to, you know, increase this hormetic effect and um, improve HRV. Mm-hmm. And then exercise, you know, zone two, uh, I would put that in the recovery bucket in addition to, you know, physiological side residence, frequency breathing, hot, cold, zone two okay. uh, would be kind of my, uh, um, in my, in the, the top of the, the list. Um, and that's basically just, you know, a uh, conversational pace, nice, easy, a run, a bike, a swim, whatever modality is like, feels kind of easy to you, but just mm-hmm. kind of keeping it in that um, nice low zone, you know, it's been really showed to improve mitochondrial health. Um, and then I would say, you know, hydration is in that recovery bucket. Mobility is mm-hmm. so big, uh, you know, lots of research uh, kind of correlating our mobility with longevity. So um, you want to be able to do lift things over your head. And so, you know, mm-hmm. that's getting into the training bucket in terms of how we need to lift, but making sure that we're mobile uh, and, and thinking about our mobility is really important. Um, and then contemplative practice, I think is, uh, is definitely, so those are my top eight, I guess, based on all the literature, all the <laughs> meta-analysis. Pick eight. <laughs> yeah, those, those, That's eight. Amazing. those are based on all of the research, um, mm-hmm. that, that we're doing internally. And then all of the external research that I've looked at, um, those are the, the, the big movers, I think in our physiology. I love it. I'd love to dig into more what you mean when you say contemplative practice. Mm, yeah. So this would be prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, this would be, you know, gratitude practice, journaling, um, you know, some of, you know, I, I kind of stick to the ones that are, uh, what I love about breath work um, is that it's uh, very prescriptive mm-hmm. and it's specific, whereas some of these other modalities can be a little bit more nonspecific mm-hmm. in that they're harder to uh, do well. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's easy to follow breathing protocol. Like it's easy to do box breathing. It's easy to do the physiological side because you're literally just following a breath rate. Whereas when you get into, um, you know, uh, contemplative practices, they could be uh, a little less prescriptive and, mm-hmm. and therefore we're not quite sure the effect that it's really having on the physiology. Mm-hmm. But I will say that I think there's you know, just, we've got thousands and thousands of, of years of, of evidence where, you know, prayer is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, gratitude practice is really powerful. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, having, uh, building those practices into your framework, um, is, is, is I think really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think about it in terms of, 
under, like using those practices to be able to, to gain more control over your attention and over your thoughts. Mm-hmm. I, I think especially in, in today's world where there's so many things competing for our attention, so many really tempting things, you know, and, and having time by ourselves is, um, is becoming less without all of these distractions, without using our phone. It, it's becoming, I think, um, I think it's actually this superpower of the 21st century is really being able to um, control your thought and thoughts and your attention, but Mm -hmm. it's a skill you have to develop. Um, So, and I think contemplative practice is a path to Mm -hmm. being able to control our thoughts and intention um, and really be able to grasp onto the things that are truly rewarding to us. Mm -hmm. Um, But if we don't take that time out to to sit and listen to Mm -hmm. our thoughts, we don't know we end up kind of flinging ourselves in all, all of our directions. I mean, all directions. So, you know, in, in my view, it's the most important. Um, it's hard to talk about because it is so nonspecific sure. and, um, you know, f- and, you know, I'm kind of a data person, but, <laughs> um, but I know for me that if I didn't yeah. have this grounding practice every day, I would not be able to accomplish the things that I do over the course of the day. And, um, and, and feel good about just how I'm moving about in the world. Um, Absolutely. so, yeah. yeah. And I agree with you 100% from a N of one <laughs> standpoint yeah. where, and I'd love to dig into this a little bit more too, about just mm-hmm. the impact of, we've mentioned a few times, emotional regulation and being able to modulate in different situations. But, yeah. you know, we know that, you know, our thoughts then influence the emotions that we feel. And the more that we are able to be aware of those thoughts and, um, have some ability to, to regulate and modulate that impacts our emotional state as well. Um, and all these other resilience factors. So I'll share a little personal story, but last week was a great example. We, we can always, we know these things, but it's always interesting to test them and reaffirm how important they are. But I had last week, I, uh, went to a college reunion so I had alcohol like three nights in a row, like a drink and mm-hmm. which I don't normally do. Didn't sleep much because we were up until two or three in the morning and then went right into a work offsite where it was like scheduled all day, every day for three days. So that wow. meant my sleep. Like if I pull up my whoop screen, mm-hmm. I've got, you probably can't even see, I don't know if you can see this on the screen, but you've got basically Oh yeah. (laughs) Three days of 69, 75, 75%. And then now I'm back up to hundred. I'm feeling more like myself, but um, but it it was that combined with, you know, my HRV took a plummet combined with not doing my normal morning full contemplative practice. Like it was this abbreviated version of, okay, I'm trying to, trying to balance how much sleep I get versus how much time do I have doing things like prayer and journaling and gratitude and meditation. And it, I took a big hit. So not only am I seeing it in my data, but I did not feel like myself. I was extremely, um, I had an extremely hard time regulating my emotions, like little things that would normally not bother me were really getting to me. And, you know, now having a few days to reset into my normal routine, I feel like a completely different person. I feel more resilient sort of mentally, emotionally, physically. And so sometimes you know, it takes those reminders for us to know how important those behaviors are. I know. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, it's a great story. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, we hear that those stories from our members and customers yeah. all the time, you know, yeah. it's, it's like you, it's, uh, it's, it's really, 
in some ways, you know, validated and kind of see in the data, the behaviors, and then actually, you know, think about how am I actually feeling and be like, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it, it lines up, <laughs> you know, like I don't feel like I have the ability to regulate my emotions. And, and we see this, you know, in our data, uh, you know, we're doing uh, some research with uh, 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 executives. Um, so a hundred executives, sorry, I just have to choose my words to make sure I don't out anyone here. A um, hundred executives, so hard charging folks. And what we're, uh, one of the, the areas that we're examining in the study uh, is this relationship between uh, stress, HRV, um, sleep and executive function. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we saw emerge in the data is this really strong statistical, statistically significant relationship between sleep debt. Mm. So the difference between what Whoop says you need mm -hmm. versus what you got. So in the screenshot that you shared, you have the 300%. So yeah. that's Whoop telling you how much you need to spend in bed, Julie, and then you actually spending that in bed, 100%. Mm -hmm. So the delta between what you needed versus what you get is basically the sleep debt metric. And you can find that by clicking on sleep need. Mm -hmm. And that sleep debt, what we see is that for every 45 minutes that folks accumulate, of sleep debt, it actually correlates to next day executive function and working memory. Wow. Our ability to kind of regulate, make decisions mm -hmm. and regulate our emotions that is really tied to, um, to, uh, to the sleep debt metric. The other thing that we see is that sleep, my sleep debt doesn't just affect me, it affects my team as well. Mm -hmm. And there's a relationship between, we saw this in our part two of the study is that we basically asked the direct reports of the CEOs to, um, you know, kind of evaluate the how psychologically safe they felt. Mm -hmm. um, and we saw a significant relationship between wow. the psychological safety of the team and the, the CEO's sleep debt. That is powerful. And just crazy, right? The impact of that on you know, a company's productivity, team's productivity, the whole, like you said, psychological well-being yeah. of everyone involved. And probably the 45 minutes lost in sleep, you're losing way more than that in terms of your productivity the next day. It's $4.3 million. And wow. Google did a huge study. So teams <laughs> that felt less psychologically safe, mm -hmm. um, you know, reduced their, uh, their profitability by $4.3 million. Wow. That's incredible. Isn't yeah. that just insane? The, the power but of in, data right now, instead of, data. of having to go around yes, Princeton's and, campus and telling everyone to sleep, now you have data. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, I think, it, but I, I think like more importantly though, it's think about like, I'm just, you know, I wake up with, you know, a couple hours and some of these folks are walking around with three hours of sleep debt. We're just talking about four, 45 right, minutes, you know, right. it's just huge amounts of sleep debt. So they like plod, you know, they, they kind of grind through the day, right. Trying to keep it all together what happens when they get home? Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's even worse. I bet well, when you interview their families, can you even imagine? Cause that's where, you know, the data shows that that's where we're at our worst is mm -hmm. with the people that we love and that we're yeah. trying to care for. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I can go on and on about sleep deprivation, but, and, and, you know, some folks, and that's why I'm really spending a lot of my time in these higher stress, higher stakes environments where their drop, you know, you, you think <laughs> about frontline healthcare clinicians and mm -hmm. the amount of circadian desynchronization, those folks, oh it's just as part of their job, you know, mm -hmm. so really investigating, okay, what are these levers that we can, we can pull to kind of mitigate some of the effects of just not being able to have stable sleep wake time all the time mm -hmm. and, and viewing light when we should be sleeping. And, you know, this has like a knockoff effect on, you know, every system and cell in our body, you know, mm -hmm. that impacts our longevity and, and it impacts our ability to, you know, you know, be the, 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 the parent that I want to be and the spouse that I want to be. And, 
So, you know, I, I have like my heart really yes. goes out to, to those folks. And, um, and a lot of reasons why we're doing this research is to try to help uh, specifically night, night shift mm-hmm. uh, workers to, to really understand, you know, what, what are the little things that we can do that will have mm-hmm. a meaningful impact, you know? Absolutely. And it, it reminds me of what you said at the beginning about the, um, the things that we need as humans, basic needs and one being control. And I think for so many yeah. people who have this dysregulated work schedule, um, there's so much of a loss of sense of control, but if there are a few levers, like you said, that we know can make a difference that can maybe restore some of that, um, yeah. back to know, okay, there's something I can do about yeah. this to mitigate, you know, maybe the negative effects. Exactly. Exactly. And it, it's really housed in some of those recovery behaviors, you know, and, and definitely, you know, you can still manipulate light, you know, mm-hmm. even if you're working, you know, during the night and sleeping during the day, like, you know, really thinking really clearly about, about that. I mean, and then food is the other huge one that, that can be a super powerful lever, um, you know, in the, in the presence of a shorter sleep and maybe, you know, um, a fragmented sleep uh, mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Which is huge. And which also yeah. is also extremely hard because when you are sleep deprived, you know, your food cravings are more intense. You crave carbs, yeah. your insulin resistance increases. So exactly it's, right. it's a tough one to overcome, but if you have that, yeah. um, sort of knowledge that can, can make a big yep. difference. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would love to talk about how you put all of this into practice personally, because I remember being so impressed hearing you talk on our panel at the games, like, wow, this woman is she really practices what she preaches. She protects all of these behaviors in herself because she sees the data and how powerful it is. And so I'd love for you to just share what does this look like in your life, knowing how important some of these behaviors are and how do you make sure that you protect them, even though, you know, we live in the world we live in today. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely am, uh, one of those folks who, uh, takes a lot of pride in making sure that I am practicing what I preach. Um, I think that's, that's extremely important. Um, and, and most importantly, I'm trying to be the best possible role model for my kids. Um, mm-hmm. I have two children and, um, you know, who mean everything to me and, you know, I just want them, I want to be as present and as available for them as I, as I can. And I know if I don't take care of my mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being, like I, I simply can't be that for them. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just have kind of taken all of this research and just created a, you know, a routine that I just try to stick to as much as I can. And it's not perfect. I travel a fair amount for work. So it gets, you know, um, you know, out of whack every now and mm-hmm. again, but I just think about it. All right. I've got 30, 30 ish days in the, in the, in the month and I'm just trying on, on average to do these things as, as much as possible. So, um, definitely stabilizing my sleep wake time. You know, I really, that is number one for me and light. So mm-hmm. I, I, that, that's, almost Mm -hmm. non-negotiable. And when I travel, you know, to the West coast, for example, um, I live on the East coast. I try to actually maintain um, my, my, my home time zone when I travel. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I go to the Midwest, you know, I I, generally speaking, I'm trying to, uh, you know, I go to bed when I normally would on the East coast. So I try to try to stay, keep consistent as consistent as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, you know, in the, in the time that we live, um, you know, I, my social circle is pretty small, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, and I only do that because I'm just the type of person who I, I don't like complexity. Like I like things to be really simple. I like to know what I need to focus on. Mm -hmm. And, and if, you know, you're in my circle, then I give you everything that I, that I can. Um, 
but you can't do that across a lot of folks. So I, I'm really intentional about, um, you know, kind of the people I spend time mm-hmm. with and making sure that they support my values. And, um, so I, I think pretty intentionally about that. Uh, you know, I definitely build in a gratitude mm-hmm. uh, practice every day and, um, and do a lot of mindful walking, um, you know, without my technology. <laughs> um, and I, and I, that has uh, proven to be uh, really powerful for me personally, just back to kind of the controlling one's thoughts mm-hmm. and intentions and mm-hmm. really uh, centering around the things that I, I want to be paying attention to and mm-hmm. uh, making sure those things that I'm paying attention to are actually serving me. Because um, a lot of our thoughts are just absolute nonsense and right. um, they can kind of take control of our behaviors in insidious ways and in ways that we, we don't even know it's happening. So mm-hmm. um, I think thinking about that uh, proactively is really important. Um, and then, you know, hydration. I really don't drink alcohol uh, very rarely because mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's just, I think, kind of a crusher. It just, We've all energy. seen it on our whoop data for where I mean, <laughs> it is the, it's the aha moment for yeah. a lot of folks, honestly. a lot of people. Yeah. And so I'm really careful about, you know, when I, when I drink, um, and if I drink and if I do, it's usually just one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I definitely have kind of almost completely cut out the alcohol, um, you know, and just lots of vegetables and, you know, high quality proteins. Uh, so, you know, think about that and the, just the timing of, of eating, you know, I kind of stick to an eight to 10 hour mm-hmm. feeding window. Um, what does yeah. that look like schedule-wise? Like when are you, like, especially with kids and, you know, family, when do you wake up? How do you guys do dinner? Things like that. Yeah. So uh, generally speaking, so they usually get home from sports in the spring. It, it varies. My son mm-hmm. plays nice hockey. So winter is a little bit more variable in terms of when he gets home. But um, but generally speaking, you know, we're kind of eating, sitting down around 536 okay. for dinner. So usually that's like for the most part prepared um, and do a lot of meal prep on on, on Sunday, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, getting kind of just like the staples. Um, so I always make a breakfast every morning. Uh, and that's been one great thing with quarantine. Like all of yeah. a sudden we're kind of working from home. And, uh, so I, I love being able to, to get up and make the breakfast and then they're off to school. And then, um, you know, they eat generally at school. Um, I usually eat around 10 or 11. It does depend when I'm going to work out. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of, uh, some days I'll wait till after, mm-hmm. uh, my workout. Uh, and then other days I'll, I'll work out, uh, or I'll, I'll eat, you know, uh, like this morning I ate around nine, mm-hmm. uh, and then I'll work out at noon. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just kind of de- depends on when I'm going to be working out, but I usually try to work out between that, that 10 and, and 3 PM window. Um, uh, that's just like when I mm-hmm. like feel like I want to work out and usually like, you know, from seven to seven thirty to, uh, 12, I'm, I'm most like cognitively like firing right. off cylinders. So I try to like, just jam on as much work as possible. Mm-hmm. And then the afternoon, I, you know, typically have external meetings or whatnot. And then, um, yeah. And then, yeah, we eat around five 30 and then, uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much after six, like I don't, I don't really eat a whole lot, you know, every now and again, I'll have, um, if I found that I've had, you know, a bit of a kind of high, like anxious day where I have, I wasn't able to get in my breath work. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically after air, every 90 minute block of work or so, I'll do five minutes of, um, resonance frequency breathing or five minutes of physiological sigh. I love so that. definitely do. Yeah. Like I definitely do like at least three to five, uh, bouts of breath work uh-huh. from anywhere from 90, 90 seconds to five minutes throughout the day. That's amazing. It's um, a good Pomodoro technique. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that's a great idea on your breaks to do the breath work. Yep. Yep. Without a doubt. Um, and that's, that's been, I've been pretty consistent with that for like, 
the last four years. And that, that's been a huge game changer. I definitely see my HRV, you know, uh, when I came out of the platform, it was 60 milliseconds and it's mm-hmm. like 110, I think it's amazing. Uh, my average. So yeah, so it's a pretty big increases just with these like lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then I'm, I'm usually in bed at like 845 and I read, uh, I usually print out uh, the journals because I'm working mm-hmm. on my P I'm <laughs> finishing my PhD. So uh, so usually like at night, I'm just reading journals and then, um, yeah. And then I'm usually asleep by nine 30 and I wake up around five 36. That's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. I think it just yeah. gives a lot of context and, you know, real world. How do you, how do you put this into practice? Apply it. Well, yeah, well, for sure. I know we are almost out of time, but I would love to wrap up with, and we've probably covered a lot of these things already, but the three questions I ask everyone at the end of the, the podcast so the first one is to just reiterate, what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? Yeah. Sleep, wake time, mm-hmm. no question. Um, and I would say just awareness of the things that I value and care about mm-hmm. and making sure that my behaviors align with those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I think when we, when there's dissonance between, well, when we don't align our, our, our values and behaviors, we get this cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. that, uh, in psychology, that's a term where we basically feel uh, pretty shitty about our <laughs> about mm-hmm. our life. So I try to avoid that. So just uh, <laughs> awareness, first of all, okay, what is it that I want to be thinking about? What is it I care about? Yes. You know, what are my values? And just making sure that I have outlets for the things that I say I care about. Uh, and then just taking stock and aligning my values and behaviors. And, you know, I, I really think about that, and meditate on that daily. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's probably number two, sleep-wake time, because uh, that sets up, that's the one behavior that basically puts all of these other Everything things that else. I talk about in motion. That's my mm-hmm. anchor behavior, no question. Everyone needs, needs to find their own like anchor behavior, but mm-hmm. that's for me, that sets me off in the right, right path across these other behaviors. Um, and then, uh, yeah, uh, value behavior alignment, I think is, is, is a two. And then, um, and then I would say, uh, you know, it, it, it sounds silly, but like just drinking water. Yeah. <laughs> like, Basic things just, to remember. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I just find that, I, I guess that's like another like core anchor behavior. Like when I'm drinking water, like, I don't know, just <laughs> things are good, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I, you know, I, I, you know and, and I always feel like so lucky, you know, to mm-hmm. like have like fresh, clean water that I can drink. And it's like so vital for like healthy functioning. My workouts are better. Like Mm -hmm. I can think more clearly. So water. That's amazing. (laughs) Good gratitude for water. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, exactly. What's one thing that you think, or, you know, based on the data would have an impact, but you have a hard time implementing or one of those things that maybe, you know, is the first to go when you're traveling or things get a little crazy. Yeah. I mean, first to go when I'm traveling it's probably the light, the light behavior. Mm-hmm. I find that harder to control. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, uh, let's say I'm in a hotel and I, you know, I'm on the 12th floor and I'm like having to, you know, I wake up, I'm getting ready. Like, and then it's two, two hours have gone by and I, you know, I haven't been outside yet, you know, mm-hmm. so I, mm-hmm. I'm getting sunshine, you know, when we talk about like light exposure, what I mean is that you want to get outside in the natural light for five to 10 minutes, um, even on a cloudy day, but that light into the the retinas basically mm-hmm. tells our control center of our brain what the heck to do. And, mm-hmm. you know, depriving your body of that moment uh, has, has huge downstream effects uh, to our overall kind of health and wellness. So 
light behavior. Like I'm, I'm super diligent at home. It's really easy. I just walk outside on my porch and there it is. Um, but yeah, when I'm traveling in hotels and I find that I, I end up uh, neglecting that. So for sure. Yeah, for sure. Last question is what does a healthy life look like to you? Living my values mm-hmm. uh, with joy and energy. <laughs> you know, I think that's like, mm-hmm. honestly, like the reason why I do all this is because I, I want to be able to have, you know, the, the energy and uh, to, to really like just live the things that I care about. That's amazing. Amazing. And for so many people, I think knowing your values, number one, and then living them, aligning your behaviors. Yeah. Um, that's incredible. Wow. Yeah. I think it's an important exercise for everyone to to think about and they change and it's okay for them to kind of change. Yeah. They, you know, you might have a core set that Mm -hmm. are pretty stable uh, across your life, but Mm -hmm. I think that's, I always tell my kids, like, it's okay to change your mind, you know, Mm -hmm. but, but think about who you want to be in the world, you know, like, cause your identity, like your choices and your behaviors are either going to reinforce that identity or or they're not. And, and I think when we don't, you know, am I going to be the girl who parties and eats the whole pizza or am I going to be the girl who's waking up early and practicing Mm -hmm. or, you know, it's like you figure out, okay, who, who am I actually going to be in this world? And, um, and making sure that whoever I say I want to be like my behaviors match that. Yeah. And when you spend time really defining those, it makes it easy to make those decisions in the moment because you know what your values are and you know, okay, this is the person I'm going to be. These are the decisions that that person makes. Yeah. That's well said. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. There's so many other things we might have to do a part two to talk about so many other things, including, um, you know, women's health. We didn't even really get into that, Uh, but we'll get there. We'll get there maybe in a follow-up. Um, but I really enjoyed this time. I really just appreciate the, the role model that you are, the passion that you bring to your work, um, and how much, you know, work you're doing to bring this truth out into the world and share it with people so that we can all live healthier and happier lives. So thank you. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's a real honor. Absolutely. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.